right. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Welcome to the little series we're in called How to Be Rich. Not to be confused with how to get rich. You missed the uh, Buy Amazon stock in 1998 meeting. This is how to be rich. And what you need to know is you have a heavenly father that wants to help you be an individual that lives a life that is rich indeed. We, uh, last week, were uh, talking about how if you have the wrong narrative to your life, it's not going to lead to blessing. We, we made the observation that there's only one story that has uh, a path to true life. There's only one story that is true and that truly satisfies. We saw that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses really uh, 3 through 8. Then in verses 9 and 10, we made the comment that false stories always have bad endings. Ideas always have consequences, and, and bad ideas have victims. And there's a lot of people that are following a false narrative about who God is and about where life can be found. And then we looked in verses 11, really through 18, and we said, man, we've got to pursue God, practice his ways, and proclaim the story of life that he gives us for the glory of God and the good of others, and that's where life indeed can be found. What I'm going to do is wrap up 1 Timothy 6 today, and then we're going to show you uh, the exhortation of a loving father towards you so that you can have life indeed. That's what you really want. You want to be uh, an individual that um, understands the true character and nature of God. That's how you can be rich. Because so many of us think that we're going to find life and uh, fullness apart from the way that God directs us and calls us. First Timothy says, nope, that's not the way it's going to go. The Bible, frankly, is just saying the same thing. Hey, I want you to know that I'm a good father. And I delight in things going well for you. The very first week of the series, I, I made a crazy claim. I said, I'm one of the richest guys on earth. In fact, I don't know anybody who's richer than me. I know folks that stand with me at the front of the line, but I don't know anybody whose life is richer than mine because by the kindness of God, I have walked with him by and large for decades in my life. Proverbs chapter three was a, a section of scripture we looked at. This is what your father, on this Father's Day, it's a good verse to remind ourselves. This is what our father wants for us. Proverbs three says this in verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom. God wants to bless you, so he wants you to spend time with him. He wants you to have understanding. For her profit, the profit of wisdom is better than silver and gold. And, and so you want to dig in there. The, the, the benefit of wisdom is more precious than jewels, it says. And nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways. All her paths are peace. The way of wisdom is a tree of life, the scripture says. To all who take hold of her. And happy are all those who hold fast to her. You've got a father who wants to bring blessing into your life. Um, I got a text message or two this week from different folks that were where um, my daughter was. She's up there, one of my daughters is up there serving at a summer camp, loving people, and they sent me a bunch of pictures of, of Landry with some of their kids and their friends' kids, just saying, man, your daughter has been a blessing to us. Your daughter is loving these kids. Your daughter is, Todd, you've always been an encouragement to us, but I can't think of any greater kindness than, than your kids loving my kids. And I gotta tell you, man, I, I, you know, the Bible says um, I, there's no greater joy than to see your children walking in the truth. Because there's nothing that gives me joy as much as when I see my kids do things that make people not just love me, but love them. And it did chase back through her. It made, because of the way my kids acted, I got text messages and encouragement. Thank you, Todd, that this is your lineage. Uh, when I first started, went up to school at Oklahoma State, I got an email, I got a letter from a professor at a Big 12 school that I had never met before, who got to know my daughter, not because of her athletic prowess, but because of the way she loved others in her classroom, the way she talked to him, and the way that they had conversations about just life in general, inside and outside of class. He said, I want to know your dad. I want to write your dad a note. I got a letter from a college professor saying, I see young adults all the time. I don't see many young women like this. Now I gotta tell you, I've gotten other letters from teachers over the course of my kid's lifetime. I just don't want you to be. <laughs> Dear Mr. Wagner, right? 
I've gotten other letters too, but I'm going to tell you, nothing delights me more than when people want to know me and thank me because they see something amazing in my kids. Because it makes, when my kids walk according to the wisdom that by the kindness of God I have seen to be true, and they believe me, and they honor the God that I've come to honor, it makes people love them the way it makes people love me when I do what my father wants. And here's what's even more amazing. It makes people love my father. It makes other people, when they see my life, just like when sees my kid's life, act and conduct themselves in such a way that is a source of encouragement and glory to them. It makes them want to know me. It makes people want to know my father and go, who are you? Who raised you? Who taught you to love this way? Who taught you to handle resources and, and, and the perspective on on trials and the perspectives on trouble and the, uh, the perspective on, on riches that you have? Because I want to know your dad. And man, there is nothing better than that. You want to know how rich I am? Listen to this. I am so rich that the infinite, personally supplied, all-sufficient God has given me so much that I can add to his understand, His understood glory on earth. Let me say that again. God gives me riches that allows me, and God wants you to have riches that allow you to give to the all-sufficient, glorious God more of his glory established in the earth. Now listen, God's not concerned about establishing his glory in general. It's already established. He is concerned about establishing his glory on earth. Why does God all consumed about his glory? Because that seems kind of selfish, doesn't it? Everything exists for the glory of God and all God is concerned about is his glory because he knows the more glory that is ascribed to him, which is to say that we know, God knows that the more we understand the glory that is due him, the more we're gonna want more of him. And the more we want more of him, the more our lives will be glorious themselves. There is nothing that God, our Father, is more concerned about than his glory. Every day should be our Father's day, and we should praise him and celebrate him so that we can be reminded of the goodness and greatness of God. How great is God? The greatness of God is such that your greatest thought about the greatness of God is not great enough. And the more that others see the greatness of God lived in and through you, the more they're gonna wanna know your father. And the more they know their father, the more they're gonna love him and that will add to God's joy, if you will, because he loves to bless his children. That's how rich God wants to make you. Now watch, in 1 Timothy, in verses um, 17 through 19, those of us that have come to understand our good, good father are given this encouragement. And here's, here's basically the, the application from this little section right here, which is when we pursue, practice, and proclaim life God's way, we are so rich that we add to God's kingdom. In other words, think about this. We, we, we laughed last week about the Bud Light narrative and the Bud Light stories, Right? where you bring gifts to the king and you go, oh, you know, that's very nice. You're a true friend of the crown, dilly dilly, right? Here's the deal, I'm gonna say it to you again. Paul's making the case, and I'm making the case today, I'm gonna tell you how, that when you live your life the way that you should in the riches of understanding of who God is, that you are a true friend of the crown. And that when you come and present your life before God, or when you live your life before God, God just says, much more than dilly dilly, he says, way to go. You are a true friend of the king. And you add to the riches of his glory in the sense that they are further understood. How'd you like to be that person that could bring the all-sufficient, self-satisfied God more joy? God takes no delight, it says, in the death of the wicked, but he delights in the works of the righteous. Here we go. 1 Timothy 1, 6 through 17 says this. Um, it says, instruct those who are rich in this present world. And, and that, that is double entendre. The, the richness already is the richness of understanding who God is. And then also those who have been given um, the things that the world you know, calls riches to not be conceited or to fix their hope 
on the uncertainty of the riches of this world. So two things. Number one, if you understand who God is, you know it's a gift of grace. That God in his kindness has showed you the goodness of who he is. That in his presence is fullness of joy. In his right hand are pleasures forever. That no good thing does he withhold from those who love him. That this is the blessing of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. When you, by the grace of God, come to understand that you have a loving heavenly father, he said, don't be conceited. Other people haven't come to understand that yet. So you live your life in such a way that people are gonna go, who is your daddy? Where are you from? Who raises a human like this? What is the source of this glory that I see in you? And so be it humble person that, that just, um, that doesn't get distracted by anything, that we don't, we don't put our hope in the riches that are in this world, but keep our focus on God who richly supplies us with all things, watch this, to enjoy. And now you're gonna find out the key to enjoying everything God gives you that it's more blessed to give than it is receive. Uh, it's more blessed to live God's way than it is to, to live man's way. And he says in verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of life indeed. Let me say to you again, the main application of this little section right here is that when we pursue produce and proclaim life God's way, we become so rich that we can add to God's kingdom. A number of years ago on Father's Day, my wife said, hey, what do you wanna do this Father's Day? Or it might even been my birthday. I said, I'll tell you what I wanna do. I wanna want, want buy a gift for each of the kids. On Father's Day or on, or on my birthday, I wanna get each of them something. Because I want them to know that that's my heart, that, that nothing brings me greater joy than to bless them, than to see them walk in, in the blessing of, of relationship with me. Not in really, frankly, some fleeting gift, but I want them to see my heart, that everything I ask of them and everything I do for them and call them to is because I want it to be a blessing to them. And frankly, when somebody sees that's who you are, you know what they do? They go, well, I, I, I'm so thankful for my father. The fathers we have a hard time celebrating are the fathers that live selflessly. Say, so you know what I want for fathers? They leave me alone. Let me watch the US Open. Leave me alone. Let me go play golf. Just let me have some beer. Right? Those aren't fathers we love. The father we love is a father like the one that we've got, who while we're separated from him, he pursues us and runs after us. Scriptures are really clear, man. Instruct them to do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous. Be ready to share. I want you to enjoy life, and that's how you enjoy it. There is a section of Scripture that I want to take us to. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that, that walks this out, that if you are um, rich in the grace of God, that you're going to be rich in generosity. You want to really be rich, Right? You want to be an individual that lives for others. You want to live and be rich in good works. You want to be, live and be rich in generosity. In fact, I'll say this. Giving is grace's gift. When you are generous, when you're a giver, giving is grace's gift that makes you rich. People love generous individuals. And God wants people to love you. Now, it's not just the ability to stroke a check or give large amounts. It just means being an individual that understands that life is found not in seeking your own pleasure, but in giving your life away for others. And your father loves you. And I knew, raising my kids, if you walk this way, that you're going to have a dignity and an honor and um, a good name on you that is to be more desired than great riches. Favor is better than silver and gold. And I prayed that my kids would have it. And I knew they would have it if they walked according to the ways of my Father in heaven. And so I exhorted them that way. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 is a loving spiritual father encouraging his children on how to be rich. And he knows that when they live their life the way Jesus did, who though he was rich for their sakes became poor, that through his poverty they might become rich, that they would also be rich indeed. Yesterday I was, um, or a couple days ago, I, I buried my friend Dee Elliott with all of our friends. And, and Dee um, was an individual that um, was much celebrated because he invested deeply and intimately in the lives of others. 
And he had a couple of phrases that he was known for amongst the guys that he built into. He just said this, hey, if you want to know God more, read your Bible. The Bible is a revelation. It tells you the story of God. Quit pinning on God all these characteristics of him that you think are true. Let God show you who he is, that he radically pursues people that he created to enjoy the blessings of who he is, that didn't want the blessing of who he is, and so they got uh, the food of pigs and were miserable that God then yet still made provision for them that they could be restored. What kind of God is that? You read the scripture if you want to know God more. Don't impose upon him what you think he's like, let him tell you who he's like. If you want a better marriage, he used to say, pray with your wife. I'm going to tell you, it's true. It's hard to pray with somebody that you're being um, godless toward. You don't seek intimacy before a savior with somebody that you are treating like a slave or not cherishing. And if you're committed to praying every day, you're gonna be committed to saying, hey, listen, um, I, 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 before we go to God and, and ask him to, to um, bless us by showing us more of who he is, the Bible tells us if we got something going on here, we should first reconcile with each other and then come to him. And so, man, sweetie, what ways have I not honored you and loved you today the way that I'm gonna ask God to make me more of that man? Every day, if you're committed to praying together, you're gonna to be committed to reconciling and it's gonna keep the small things small and it's gonna help you address the big things that are keep you from experiencing the oneness that God wants. D used to always say, you're praying with your wife. And thirdly, he would say, if you want to be a better leader, serve more. Now, D wasn't incredibly insightful. All three of these things are things that God's word says. I'm gonna give you a fourth and that is if you wanna be rich, give your life away. Live as a steward and realize that Everything you've been given is a gift from God and he has given it to you so that you can use it in a way that you would enjoy life and be rich indeed. And that is not gonna happen as you try and accumulate more and more and more for you, but that you might be a steward, a individual that takes what God's given you and you use it in a way that is consistent with the way that Jesus lived so that people will go, what kind of man is this and who is his father? 2 Corinthians. Here we go. In fact, let me just say this. Our kids over there today are studying in our children's ministry, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 has the story of the uh, Good Samaritan in it. You all know that story. Do you know why the story of the Good Samaritan was told? The story of the Good Samaritan was told because somebody came up and said, hey, what, what, what do we got to do? What are we supposed to do um, in order to earn eternal life? And, and he said, well, look, man, you just got to love God. Right? It's not something you do. You gotta know who God is. You gotta know that you, your sin has separated you from God and that God demonstrated his love for you and that while you're still a sinner, Christ died for you. You gotta love God. Run after that God. Life is found in God. It doesn't mean you gotta go to religious services your whole life and, and be a churchman. No, it just means you've gotta know God for who he really is. And when you know God for who he really is, you will love him with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And by the way, if you love God, you're gonna love your neighbor because God loves your neighbor. You're gonna be like God and you're gonna love people. And so love your neighbor. And then it says this, a man seeking to justify himself said, well, who then is my neighbor? In other words, I don't wanna have to love everybody. So you, know, you say, I gotta love my neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? See, when you start to, when you're an individual who kind of um, thinks this way, when you're somebody that, that wants to um, justify yourself, you, you say, who's my neighbor? But when you are somebody who wants to honor your father, you say this, who can I be a neighbor to? Right, when you want an excuse to not do something, go, I'm not sure that person's my neighbor, right? How many times have you heard people say this, man? Hey, I mean, am I my brother's keeper, right? Well, I, I don't know if you've read your Bible lately, but, but the answer is yes. That was said by Cain after he murdered Abel, and God said, Cain, where's Abel? Like, hey, am I responsible for Abel? Well, yeah, in fact, you are, and his murder. It's amazing what people say sometimes. But if you've got the heart of God, you're not gonna say, I don't know if that person's my neighbor. You're gonna live like this. Who can I be a neighbor to? Is that your perspective? Because when you walk around and you see people who are like, hey, who can I serve? They're your favorite people. Folks who don't just clean up after themselves, but look up how they can clean up after you. And I love the statement, when a man forgets himself, he usually does something everybody else remembers. The greatness of men, I would tell my kids that all the time, especially my beautiful daughters. I said, hey, listen, don't be smitten when a guy treats you well. Of course he's gonna treat you well. My brother's fishing, all right? 
But you wanna know if a guy's a good guy, you watch the way he treats people that he believes can do nothing for him. You let that guy be nice to you because, because there's something you can do for guys. They're gonna have their eyes on you. And so don't be impressed when people are, are sweet and kind and wooing towards you. Watch the way they serve those who can do nothing for them. That's where greatness lies. Who can I be a neighbor to? Paul's gonna tell the Corinthians how to be rich. It's a good place to drop in the middle of the book because in chapter eight, verse one, he's starting a whole new uh, context of things right here. He says, now brethren, changing topics. We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. The church of Macedonia, when we study the book of Acts, this is Acts oh, uh, 16 and 17. Um, it's, it's the churches of Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi. It's a region that um, specifically the folks that came to know the Lord there through Paul's ministry weren't really prospering. And what he's gonna tell these guys is God's kindness, this, this gift of God's relationship with them has, has shown up in these people's lives. And I wanna tell you something, they're gonna do something and, and they're doing it because they've received the grace of God. The grace of God is what compelled them to do the things that are making them rich, so rich that Paul is saying, you gotta know these people. So he's writing to the church in Corinth that Paul had been in already, and he's telling them about the amazing richness of these people up in Macedonia. That these folks, he goes, they're crazy. That in a great ordeal of affliction, they had an abundance of joy. I mean, how does that happen? How can you be afflicted and yet exceedingly joyful? How, how can you have deep poverty and yet overflow in the wealth of your liberality? Paul says, I know people like this. They live in Macedonia. When I, I talk to my friends sometimes, uh, when they go overseas, and they all say the same thing, I can't believe how happy these people were that had nothing compared to what I have. I can't believe how generous they were. The way that they would take, um, you know, whatever was in their kitchen and make it mine. I'm not even sure they had food for, for, for two days from now, and all they want to do is share it with me. I've never seen anything like that but it was glorious. And they're talking about believers that they had met in other cultures. I remember when my, um, some friends of mine and I were over in Goma. Goma, uh, Cong Congo, Goma is, or Goma, Congo is um, about 600,000 people live in a very oppressed region of the world. It's the most dangerous place in the world if you're a woman. The Me Too moment there has been going on for a long time. Highest percentage of rape towards women uh, per capita of anywhere in the world. Um, at the base of an active volcano. Most of the street, uh, most of the city is covered in uh, igneous rock or molten ash. It's very sharp, not comfortable to walk in. There's a corrupt government that has oppressed them for decades. Even though it's a very rich resource country, it's not a happy place to live. We're in Goma and um, we're ministering to different folks there about leadership and reconciliation and things like this and training up pastoral leaders and government leaders. And um, we were there over a weekend, so we went to different church services. Some of us taught, some of us were a part of it. And one of my friends was there, and he went uh, to this church service, and they happened to be teaching about 2 Corinthians 8. And the pastor talked about something we're about to read in a little bit, where um, you know some of you have been given an abundance of provision, and others in our body have an abundance of need. And so their poverty is a source of rich need, which your poverty of not knowing what to do with all you have can be richly met and that God can be glorified in all things. And so he just challenged his body to think through ways they could care for one another. And when they got done, one of the guys got up, who was sitting next to my friend, and he walked up and he took his shoes off and he laid them at the altar. And my, my buddy kind of said, hey, what was that about? He goes, well, you heard what the pastor said. There's some people in our body with need. We know that this is a, a city where there's, it's not easy to walk in the streets. I know that there are people in this church that don't have shoes. I've got another pair of shoes at home. And so I want to meet my brother's need by leaving my shoes here. My friend said that, you know, we were there for 10 days. He goes, I brought three pair of shoes with me and I packed light. And to see the marvel of that guy's response, 
you know, uh, just shook him. And, and I'm going to tell you, it's amazing that we got to go sometimes to places like this where there's not a lot going on that we can see the richness of, of what God provides. And, and I know when you talk about money, here's the thing. Money sometimes, it just, it just grips us in a way that, that when you kind of get to church and they're talking about money, like, oh, man. But let me just say this. If every time you open up God's word and there's not a sense of, oh, man, you're not listening. Because the way of man does not lead to life. And what the word does is it just says, hey, son, listen to me. It's kind of like me talking to a 13-year-old boy in my house. And I'm saying, listen, that, that's not the way to go. This is the way to go. And they're like, oh, man. But I go, I just promise you, I'm not trying to rip you off. I'm trying to set you free. Our father, when he talks to you, when you, when you hear God's word, the Bible talks more about money than heaven and hell combined. Why? Because money can just destroy us. Money is a great servant. It's just a horrible master. Money is amoral. It's not good or bad. What you do with it determines whether money is good or bad. Now, here, let me just say this. Money attracts us like nothing else. Um, let me give you some physics here for a second. In, in physics, the term mass, mass um, is what determines an object's um, resistance to acceleration when force is applied. That's what, that's what mass is. It's an object's uh, the weight of the resistance that will be there when force is applied to it. That's mass. Uh, mass also determines the strength of an object's gravitational pull. In other words, the, the, the greater an object's mass, the more it draws other objects to it, and, and, and it's drawn less to other things. And see, money is one of those things that just draws us to it. And when we have a lot of it, it is hard to move it the direction that God wants us to go. Sometimes people with less uh, have a greater freedom I've used this illustration before. I want to share it with you. I mean, imagine this. Imagine you guys got a pizza with eight slices. And imagine you guys own eight pizza huts. All right? <laughs> Give me some of that, right? So you guys own eight pizza huts, and you guys own eight slices of pizza. And I said, hey, man, the Lord wants you to give half of what you own to people that are in need. Right? These folks over here are going to go, all right, I'll give you four slices of pizza. Because they know that if God doesn't provide for them you know, tomorrow, they're going to go hungry anyway. So rather than just stuff myself today, why not just, why not just share it with somebody else? We at least can both live together today, and then tomorrow we'll see if God will provide. But these folks over here go, wait a minute, you're talking about, you want me to give four pizza huts away? That's a little crazy. Here's what I want to tell you. I'm not telling you God wants to give half of your pizza huts away. I'm just telling you all the dough, all right, that he's giving you to need is to bless you. And so you better use whatever he's given you in a way that's going to live to life indeed. Instead of just being focused about not losing your pizza hut, why not just ask yourself, how can I bring glory to my father through what he has stewarded me? Paul is just going to make the case, hey, these Macedonians have figured something out and I want you to have it. He's encouraging his Corinthian brothers and sisters to uh, experience the grace of living God's way. So verse three, I testify that according to their ability, these Macedonians, and even beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. They begged us, urging the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Why? Because they had seen the joy that comes with living God's way. And so they said, what? You're telling us there's other brothers and sisters in need back in Jerusalem through famine and through persecution that we can do something now that we've come to know the riches of the, the grace that has come from, the, from uh, the Messiah that was the Jews, that there are now those brothers and sisters that are suffering. How can we help them? Well, Paul's like, well, listen, we don't expect you guys to do much. You don't have very much. That's verse five. We didn't expect them to do this, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us because it was God's will that we could be a means of grace to others. Paul said it just shocked them. We saw their condition and we didn't expect them to want to do this, but they saw the greatness of God's way. They heard that God, though he was rich for their sake, had become poor, so that through the poverty of God on the cross, they became rich and they were like, hey, Let's give to them the way God's given to us. They understood what made them glorify God. And then God said, you want people to glorify you? Live like God lives. And so they were in. And Paul's encouraging the Corinthian church. You want some of that? This is how you're going to do it. Let me just say this to you. And this is an important fact. If you give yourself to God and you're not giving yourself to others, then you are deluded that you have given yourself to God. 
See, the Macedonians were glorious because they were God's people. And because they were God's people, they do what God does. They were generous towards others. If you're not generous towards others, there's only one reason for that, and that's that you haven't been a person who's been a recipient of generosity. I tell my kids all the time when people bully them, I go, hey man, listen, hurt people, hurt people. Don't be surprised. Don't get angry at them, love them. Because the reason they're doing that is that's, that's all they know. Hurt people, hurt people. But guess what? People who have been loved much forgive much. Jesus says, you want people to know that you're my disciples? Then, then love. By this, all people will know you're mine because that's the family way. And when you are a lover and you care for others and you walk in dignity and honor, you don't you look to manipulate or oppress people or use them for your own pleasure. People go, who are you? Men don't act like that. But God's people do. And they go, that's a rich life. Verse six says, so we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. So Titus is with Paul up in Macedonia. He's kind of writing a letter to the Corinthians and Titus says, I'll deliver the letter because I don't want just them to have your letter, Paul. I want to go and encourage them because I've seen the richness of living God's way. And so he says, but just as you abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. Paul says, I want you, hey, it's good that you've got faith, it's good that you have words of knowledge, that you speak wisely, it's good that, in, that you guys are earnestly uh, following God, but listen, make sure that that earnestness shows up in the way that you give. Because giving isn't an elective, it's a part of the core curriculum. But watch this. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. In other words, he's saying, look, we know the Macedonians have come to know the kindness of God because look how kind they are. Loved people love. And I want to establish that that same faith is real in you. I'm not commanding you to do it. Why? Because the way to know you are rich in grace is to be rich in giving, is to be rich in generosity. The way you know you are rich in relationship with God is to be rich in the way that you use your life as a means to be a blessing to others, just like your Lord and Savior. And Paul's saying, I'm not commanding you to do this so that God will love you, but because you have been loved by God, this is how we know that you know you're loved by God because you learn to walk in his ways. For you know, right, verse nine, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one you worship and adore, the one you just sang about for 30 minutes, you know the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through your poverty you might become rich. And so you worship him. And God wants you to be worthy of praise as well. So worthy of praise that others love you and go, who's your daddy? I want to know him. Verse 10, watch this. See, this is how to have a rich life. I give you my opinion this matter for you. It is to your advantage. Why is Paul teaching this? Because money is hard. It's got a tremendous gravitational pull. And the only way to, get to, 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 to lessen money's grip on you is to, is to get rid of some of the mass of it. And that does two things. It has the, 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 the antidote for the gravitational pull of money is to get rid of it. Um, John Wesley used to say this. Whenever I, um, whenever I get money, I get rid of it as fast as I can, lest it fix its grip on me. And doesn't it do that? It just sinks its little talons in you. So much so that until when you own eight pizza huts, all you do is worry about, I don't want to lose one of my pizza huts. That's what Solomon said. Hey, what good is riches except for the owner to keep his eyes on it? Because money takes wings. And money and possessions, they grab us in a weird way. I'll, I'll insert this real quickly right here. There was a guy named David Garrick. David Garrick was a famous actor in England. He was the very first uh, theater actor that was buried in Westminster Abbey. Uh, next to Shakespeare. He was the playwright that was buried there. And then David Garrick was buried next to William Shakespeare. David Garrick um, is the reason that sometimes within um, theater circles, you hear the phrase like, hey, break a leg. Because when David Garrick was playing Richard III, he broke his leg. But he was so into his character that his performance was not at all hindered. 
And he was just Richard III. He wasn't David Garrick with a broken leg. He went out there and he was this amazing Shakespearean king. And everybody afterwards marveled at the performance that he put on, even though he had a broken leg. And so it became a euphemism within theater to hey, like break a leg and no one should know. That's the theater phrase. David Garrick became very famous. He bought palaces and um, he became a great collector of, of uh, a lot of original Shakespeare works and, um, and, and just garnished his life with things. He had a buddy, Samuel Johnson, who's one of the greatest um, poet laureates in all of English history. And Samuel Johnson walked into the house of David Garrick one time after David was having him over to show him all that he'd accumulated. And he said, David, what are all these things? And Garrick started to walk around and explain what they diff- the th- different things were and why he built the room this way. And he goes, no, 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 David. These are the things that make a deathbed terrible. Because your heart attaches to them. He's quoting 1 John there. Don't love the world or the things of the world. For those that love the world, the love of the Father is not in them. And the more of the world you have, the more it just pulls you towards it. Paul is trying to encourage the Corinthians to not be trapped into things that take wings and make deathbeds terrible. He says this, I give my opinion in this matter, verse 10, for this is to your advantage. That's why I'm writing. Don't make your deathbed terrible. Make it glorious. Like it says in 1 Timothy 6, uh, 19, store for yourself a treasure of a good foundation for the future. So that right now you can experience the praise of men and the glorious way and that God would bless you. But, but going back to 2 Corinthians, he says this. But now, even though you said you had a desire to give earlier when I was with you, now you got to finish doing it. So that just as there was the readiness and the desire to give to others, there may also be the completion of it by your ability. Don't worry about what you don't have. If the readiness is present, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. Can I tell you this? You know, when we built this building or when we bought this property and built the first building, when we did the offices and then we we, we purchased Fort Worth, we purchased Plano and we're, we're investing in Frisco. I mean, you think about literally the tens of millions of dollars that we have spent here. My family, all right, if we were waiting on the Wagner family to build this place, we'd be in folding chairs outside with an overhead projector. But I gotta tell you, we didn't go, well, what good is it for us to give? Even if it was in the tens of thousands of dollars, what good is us to give tens of thousands of dollars to a tens of million dollar project? The answer is, hey, Todd, don't worry about what you don't have. If you're ready to give for the glory of God, that you can do the part that you're supposed to do so that that something greater can happen, just give according to what is available, not according to what is not available. And I gotta tell you something. Every time I hear a story about what's going on in Fort Worth, every time I see this facility used uh, right now as we continue to give generously to this mission, every time I hear something is happening through the work of this body, I go, I am fully vested in that. I felt like I built this entire building with the gifts that we gave. I just know better. You know what's so interesting? When Jesus was alive, one of the places he hung out was at the temple and he watched how people gave. And one time a widow goes up with two mites and she drops it in the coffers and Jesus elbows. You see that? I'll tell you, there's not a greater gift given today. Because God's not bankrupt. He doesn't need money. He just wants people to understand that what's worth living for is everything you've got. And that widow, that was all she had. And again, it just so happens that when you don't have very much, it's easier to give generously in proportion, but just, just do what you should do. And you need to know something. Some of you who think, well, what difference does this make? I mean, this place is not endowed. We're not Stanford here, right? We're not just living off interest. Week to week, people are investing in this place. And don't worry about what you can't give. Just give to the mission because you see God at work and you want the glory of God to expand. God's ministering to you and and investing in you and you want to go, I want more of that so I can be more of what God wants so my life can be more of the richness that God intends so that more can know the greatness of my Father. How rich can you be that you can do everything you can do that the glory of your Father is further renowned on the earth? And don't worry about what you can't do, just do what you should. Now watch this. I want you to do this not for the ease of others and for your affliction but by way of equality, that at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, this is the verse in Goma. 
your abundance being a supply for their needs so that their abundance may also become a supply for your need. You have too much and need to do something with it. They don't have enough and need something. So now we've got a chance for God to be glorified. As it is written, he who gathered much didn't have too much and he who gathered little had no such lack. God, God does this. Here's a principle. You ready for this principle? God unequally distributes gifts so he can be glorified. Not so we can be communists. We're not communists here, we're Christ-like. And so when we have more than we need and we see brothers, not irresponsible men, the Bible doesn't say that we're to give money to people who don't work. Read 2 Thessalonians 3. But these are people that are doing what they can and for whatever reason, there's a need and a crisis and, and they're part of the community of faith and they're living noble lives. You come alongside of them out of your abundance and go, how can I help you? One of the applications of this message, I'm going to stick in right here. Listen, you, we have a problem here. is because we kind of um, group people in our church according to um, often geography and life stage. What happens is we have community groups that are made up of people that are all folks that are, that are resourced abundantly. And we have community groups often that live in areas where they're food insecure. They're not even sure that they got enough pizza for next week. They have car trouble, it's a financial crisis. They have a health problem, they're bankrupt. Right here, good old watermark. One of the things you need to do is get together with your community group this week and just say, okay, hey, listen, are we under-resourced or over-resourced as a group? If you're over-resourced, you need to know something. We're part of a larger body here where there are individuals in this body that are working hard, that are vetted, that are widows indeed, not just a name only, okay? That are people who have... Um, an inability to provide for themselves, even though they're living as responsibly as they can. And you need to say, God forbid that because it's out of sight, it's out of our mind. We need to know, who are some of those community groups, Todd? Talk to your community group leader and say, hey, we'd like to form a relationship with somebody who maybe lives in a different part of town than us to get to know them, not have them over to our house, but let's go see their apartment that they live in. Let's have them pick us up in their car that may break down on the way home and see if we shouldn't maybe do something. Why? Not for your affliction and their prosperity, but so that God might be glorified that in your poverty of not knowing what to do and their richness of need, God, people can meet as brothers together and God would be glorified. This, by the way, is exactly what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12. You not only supply the glory, uh, the, the, the needs of the saints, but it causes an overflowing thanksgiving to God. What else would you rather do than to live in a way that of the richness of your life, people go, praise God. We have examples of this. I've mentioned this before. And there was a small group of families that emailed in and said, put us on a list. By the way, we have a Karis ministry here where we vet everything that we do when someone says, I have a need. And, and we work with members of our body. But sometimes people aren't fully assimilated yet that are members that through the membership class and they've got a need. And there have been people that have just said, let us know. We want to know what we can do. And some of those folks have experienced some of the greatest joy. Single moms who had car trouble. That there was no way for that to get taken care of. They go, we're in, thousand bucks, let's take care of it. Somebody who was in transition with a job. Between paychecks, we can't feed our family. We're in, feed that family. What joy in a way that was unmissed by those families. Did they have, because they got to be a part of those stories. Don't miss out on that blessing. This is what Paul is encouraging the church to do here in Corinth. Verse 16, he says, but thanks be to God. See that? Thanks be to God who put this earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. Titus wants to come to you, and, and, and what he's going to say right here is this. Um, God is the one who put the desire in Titus's heart to go to Corinth. Corinth was not a place and not a bastion of great spiritual maturity. You know, but, but God gave Titus a heart for the Corinthians. And so what's going on here is you're going to see that, that I've said it before, what makes a man great is his concern for others, not his infatuation with himself. And Titus is regarded as a great man and the work that is going on in Titus's heart that makes him a great man is a work of God, not because of some innate goodness in Titus. And what Paul's gonna say, just like God gave Titus a heart for you, I believe God's gonna give you a heart for others. 
This week I was um, at, at Dee's funeral. There was a guy I hadn't seen in a while. I go, man, I haven't seen you a bit. What's going on? He goes, well, I moved. I moved to God's country. So I heard that and I was like, okay, man, God's country. The brother probably moved to Colorado, right? Especially in June. I go, where do you, do you move to Colorado? He goes, no, I moved to Houston. And then before I could say anything, he goes, because only God could love Houston. That's what he said. And I thought that's so great, right? First, it's true in Houston. And secondly, all right, and secondly, I thought when people watch the way that we go, hey, where's a neighbor that I can bless them? Only God, God demonstrates his love in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know that God? Is that your daddy? Does his spirit live inside of you? You must be from God's country. Paul's saying, Titus is coming to you because he loves you. That's a work of God in him. I want to see the work of God in you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's gone to you on his own accord. In the same way, we want you to be giving of your own accord. And so I'm writing to encourage you. And he's coming because he loves you. And he wants you to not grow weary in doing good so you can be somebody that, thanks be to God, lives the way that you live. Because that's where richness and in life indeed is. Do you see what's going on here? So watch this. And verse, uh, you know, the rest of the chapter, he just basically goes through and he just says, there's another group of guys we're sending with Titus. They all have the exact same heart for you. And then we get to 2 Corinthians chapter nine. He says this, it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. In other words, I know who you are. I know your heart. I know your readiness of which I boasted about to the Macedonians, namely that Ahia has been prepared since last year. In other words, I've told the Macedonians that you're God's people. As I tell people all the time, when folks say to me, man, Wagner, I, I've been to Watermark. That is a beautiful church. I always say the same thing. I go, who'd you meet? They go, what? I go, I'm, I'm talking about the building. I go, oh, I thought you said the church. Yeah, that's a beautiful building. But I thought you said it was a beautiful church. The church is the people. Man, you should meet the people there because they are beautiful in the way they love one another, in the way so many of you in your abundance are, are being generous and sustaining this mission and giving generously to, to other brothers and sisters on mission and giving generously to others in this body who are faithful people who just are having a hard time right now. It's a beautiful thing. Paul's saying this, I know, I know who you are. I've talked about you. Verse three, he says, but I've sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case. So that as I was saying, you're ready because coming with me is going to be some Macedonians and I don't want them to see you not ready. All right. Because that'll put shame and my confidence in you. I don't want that to happen. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead of you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. So that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. What Paul's saying is, Hey, the gravitational pull of things can take you and hold you from the glory that God intends for you to have. And so I'm encouraging you and I'm inviting you to be careful to not let things own you. I know you're scared that the way to life is to have more things. I'm reminding you that's not the way to life. And so I'm sending Titus so they can encourage you not to limit what you might reap because of greed or covetousness or fear. And Paul's gonna say, I wanna calm your anxious heart. I wanna remind you of the way of life. It's to be generous like your father. And so he's gonna use these words that health, wealth, and prosperity liars distort. You guys watch Jesse Duplantis, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, these guys who want all these folks to help them buy all these new planes and all this different stuff right here. This doesn't say, what you're about to read right here is not this. It's not give God 50 so we can give you 500 so I can fly a G650. That's not what you're about to read. But that's the way these kind of verses are distorted in the text. It says this. It says, now this I say, I just wanna remind you people that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. What he's saying here is not how to get rich. He's saying, I want you to be rich. I want you to have an abundance of what God wants for you. So don't begrudgingly be God's people because when you're God's people, it's life indeed. Now watch what he says. 
Each one must do as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. You, he, he's just saying, I want you to give, not because if you don't, you're gonna be judged by the church, but I want you to give as a way of showing that you belong to Jesus' church and that you advance Jesus' kingdom and live generously so that your father can be glorified and I, I want you to do this because you love God. Not so that you can be loved by God or that you can have more human wealth because this is what he tells you that you're going to bountifully reap. Watch this. This is what false teachers won't show you. Here's the bountiful reaping. God is able to make all grace abound to you. You'll have more. You'll have sufficiency in everything. You'll have an abundance for every good deed. In other words, you're gonna see that when you live God's way, it is life indeed. You're gonna know what the, Thessal the, 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 the Thessalonians and the Bereans and the Philippians knew. That in your great affliction, there can be abundance of joy. In your great poverty, there's great liberality. This is how to be rich. Look, when most people give today, all right, they're, they're given like this, okay? This is a good picture I found this week. All right, that's the way most people give today. All right, don't, don't be a selfie giver. Be a selfless giver. Because it's the way to greatness. What Paul's trying to say, do it joyfully. By the way, this is why we don't pass a basket here at Watermark. You know that? I mean, it's not because we're endowed. It's because we don't want to compel you by some obligation or folks watching if I put a 20 in or try to sneak one out. I mean, it's, 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 it's so that you, we, there are people here that give every week and all the time because they see God at work here and they do it joyfully. We, we don't want money to be what people think we're about, but we also, I want to tell you, if you think the reason we don't pass a basket is because we feel like there's shame in giving to the ministry, boy, we've done you a great injustice. No, we want you to give biblically, because it says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, to give in a way that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. You don't give in such a way to practice your righteousness before men and to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you've got no reward with your Father who's in heaven. And you've got no reward with your Father in heaven if what you're going to turn in is how much you gave to God's kingdom. Like that's going to establish your righteousness. No, because God's righteousness is established in you, you begin to look like your Father. And so Paul's just encouraging him towards that. As it's written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. It's just talking about when you start to live God's way, you're gonna be more encouraged to live more of God's way. Obedience is its own reward. And you get a heart that starts to go, I wanna do more of what my father wants, because when I do what my father wants, I see it bring life to others. And so I want to do that with all of my heart. And, and, and so he quotes from Psalm 112, which is the Psalm of the righteous right here, where he says he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Paul's trying to say, you have no idea the way God has used, or is going to use what you're going to use in your, in your being obedient. I can't to see the way to see what the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in your life is going to be. Acts of non-generosity are quickly forgotten. Acts of generosity endure forever. Verse 10. Now he supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. And what's going to increase? Grace in your life, a desire to do good works in verse eight. And then verse 10, what's gonna increase is the harvest of your righteousness. Verse 11, so that you're gonna be enriched for all liberality which is going to increase the thanksgiving to your father. Do you see what increases when you're generous? It's not give 50, get 500. At the same time, I'll tell you this. God's not an idiot. And good, the, the reward for faithful service is off, off, often the opportunity for more service. And whether that's gonna come in the form of material money and wealth or not, it will certainly come with a heart that's more willing to do what God wants. This is life indeed. When you live life the way that Jesus wants you to live and when you're generous, it turns into something glorious. Even just a little at a time. I'll tell you, there's a story I came across this week. My, my buddy Graham actually shared this also. He read the same article I did in the New York Times. Um, but this is a guy here, he's called the man with, with a golden arm. 
His name's James Harrison, he's 81. When he was 14, he had a, a, a great traumatic um, event in his life and he needed massive surgery and it tossed a, a tremendous amount of uh, blood had to be infused into his body to give him life. And so it, it took a significant amount of stranger sacrifice to help him to live. And so he said, as soon as I'm an adult, I'm gonna try and give life to others. And so from the time that he was 18 until just last month when he was 81, they said, James, you gotta stop giving blood. We think it's no longer good for you. The guy every three weeks gave blood, 1,173 times. This is a, just a retired railway administrator that fears needles. He said not once in 1,173 times that I watched the needle go in my arm. I didn't like doing it, all right? But I had great joy in giving blood because I saw somebody sacrifice for me, I wanna sacrifice for others. Here's the thing. Uh, when we buried D. Elliott the other day, you know, you always talk about things like this. My buddy Clint Bruce was uh, talking about him in the eulogy. And, and um, you know, when someone's born on January 1, 1960, and they die, you know, uh, June 1, 2018 is an example. Uh, we talk about what makes that life glorious is the dash between them, right? You ever heard that? And, and when D. was alive, Clint told D., man, D., you've got a great dash. You got to be careful when you say that. You got a great dash. And really, here's what a dash is. A dash is just a bunch of very small dots closely placed together. In fact, so closely and tightly together that you can't distinguish them until it forms a line. And what makes your life great is just a little bit, a unit at a time of being generous and living as Jesus wants you to live. A unit at a time, a unit at a time, a unit at a time. In fact, when you give blood, that's what you can give, a unit. You know what's so interesting about blood giving? A unit is about a pint of blood. The average adult has eight to 12 pints of blood or eight to 12 units of blood in their body. Let's just say 10 on average. One-tenth of your blood is what you can give each time you give. Do you know what's else interesting about the human body? Is your body is constantly producing blood, so within 24 to 48 hours max of you giving a unit, it's completely resupplied. Now here's what's amazing about James Harrison. He gave blood 1,173 times. What he didn't know until 10 years into this thing is doctors in Australia came to him and said, Doctor, they said, James, you need to know this. Your, your blood is, has got some unique characteristic to it. There's a strain of plasma found in your blood. They later found it in about 150 other people, but James's blood was the one that, that helped them discover what's called the anti-D um, you know, uh, antidote, which basically when a mother has negative blood types and a baby has positive blood types, it causes um, a, a, a reaction in the immune system which would affects a baby's red blood cells, which often leads to death. But they said, James, your blood has something that we think can save this. And they started to inject through a needle uh, red blood platelets or blood platelets from James's blood into women over the last of the number of years. They just said he saved. 17% of Australian women have this issue. They said he has saved with one unit at a time 2.4 million babies. 2.4 million babies. That's pretty amazing. But all he had was just, he goes, I just want to give back. What somebody gave to me, I want to give back. And now you look back at the end of this man's life and you see him just doing what he could do with one unit at a time and it just added up to just what Australia is saying. You know, this is amazing. No one's ever done anything like this. His own daughter had this disease. Two of his grandchildren are alive because of James. And people are looking at this guy and goes, man, how do you do that? Well, you do it just a unit at a time. Faithful, 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 faithful. So let me just give you just a couple of quick prayers and we close with this. Ask yourself this, Father has a degree, or ask God this in prayer. Father, and I'll put these out on the web every week in sermon notes and you can just put these prayers. Father, has a degree of my giving suggested that I've recognized and embraced the full extent of your grace in my life? Or does it suggest I need to recognize and respond to your grace in deeper and more heartfelt ways? Secondly, pray this. Father, could it be that you've raised me up and given me what you've given me today with the financial assets you've entrusted me with for such a time as this because there's an abundant need somewhere else? And so in my great poverty of not knowing what to do with my riches, you're gonna show me as I'm diligent to work with this community and others about what we could do at this moment for the glory of God. Thirdly, Father, is my life revolving around you? Open my eyes, pray this. What am I holding on to that's robbing me of present joy and future reward? Since money and things exert mass and mass exerts gravity and gravity holds things in orbit, which of my quote unquote assets can I give to your kingdom 
and others so that you become the center of my gravity. I want to tell you something. You push your heart towards others and your heart will go where others are. You push your heart towards God and your heart goes there. Finally, Lord, have I been acting as if I own what you have stored in me? Deliver me from that. That says I'm the owner and that you should be grateful if I give a small percentage to you in your kingdom. As if you were um, anything less than a God that is my Lord and King that I want to be a steward of. Help me to grow in that area. Folks, the heart of this text is that you can have a life that's rich indeed as you pursue and practice and proclaim God's way, you're so rich that your father who has everything increases his kingdom and the glory ascribed to him because of you. What else do you wanna do? Father, I pray that we would walk out of here today just being encouraged by the Macedonians and by Titus's trip to the Corinthians and by Paul's admonition to young Timothy. And that we would see that what you want for us is to have more of the joy that you intend for your children as we walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Would you help us to be your people and be faithful in all things? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.